John chapter 19, beginning verse 17. Let me read for us a portion of scripture here. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. And he went out bearing his cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. If you have been with us for any length of time, you'll know that at our monthly communion services, we have been studying the seven final sayings of the Savior on the cross. Uh, And they've been an interesting uh, and insightful study, a challenge Uh, Interestingly, the entire gospel message is found in those seven sayings on the cross. Quite remarkable. But in the final words of our Saviour on the cross, we gain incredible insight into his character. So previously, we've already looked at the word of forgiveness, which is when the Lord Jesus, the very first thing he said, having been crucified, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is a remarkable statement, is it not? In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. And then last time we were together on a communion service, we looked at the word of salvation, where the Lord Jesus turns to that repentant thief and says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23:43. And you'll recall, we found it remarkable that in the midst of all of that agony and pain and suffering, the Lord Jesus is yet still interested in saving souls. Today we will look at the third, which is the word of tenderness. We find it in our text here where the Lord Jesus, talking to the Apostle John, he says, woman, behold your son. And turning to his mother, he says, To John, behold your mother, the word of tenderness. And yet to come, and I'll give you the quick summary in case you're visiting with us and wonder what the rest of it's all about. The word of isolation in Matthew 27, 46, where he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That is going to be a huge message. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's going to be two parts. So I'm just giving you the heads up now, church. And then fifthly, the Lord Jesus, the word of suffering says, after this, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. John 19, 28. And then the word of victory in John 19, 30, in the passage wherein when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished to telestai. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Again, another incredible saying from the Saviour on the cross. And then the seventh and final is the word of satisfaction where the Lord Jesus calling out with a loud voice says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46, redemption is complete. It's finished, satisfaction. So that's what you've got to look forward to over the next four months. But today we are looking specifically at the final words of a faithful Saviour part three, specifically entitled the word of tenderness. Throughout life and even in the face of the most gruesome of deaths possible, we observe today in our Saviour a man who was concerned for others more than himself, even in his circumstance on the cross. Having endured greater physical, emotional and spiritual abuse than any other person in all of history and presently at this moment on the cross bearing the full weight of the Father's wrath for sin, Jesus does not forget his mother. In tenderness and compassion, he makes provision for her physical well-being. As well, and don't miss this, as procuring her salvation by means of his present sacrifice. What a thought. What a thought. In fact, William Barclay said this, there is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus in the agony on the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he was taken away. What tenderness. What a saviour. What love. And so this morning, we're going to consider the word of tenderness spoken by the Saviour on the cross. And we're going to do something perhaps a little bit different. We're going to use the text before us, but I want to give us some short character studies this morning. Um, And I'm not entirely sure where we're going to finish up. The material I have in front of me could mean we finish up tomorrow, and I'm sure that's not necessarily what the Lord would have us do. But I do have some character studies that I want us to do, and we'll, we'll try and move through them speedily, but I don't want you to miss them. And I want you to miss them because they come to a climactic ending when we come to the compassionate Christ on the cross. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word before us. We thank you for the account given to us by the eyewitness of John on this particular day who's writing this gospel and is the beloved disciple mentioned in this text. Lord, help us, we pray, to have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us, this local church here, by application. Help us to understand the word as it was uh, written and given uh, in that day for that particular occasion. Help us to see it in its context, in its manners and customs, uh, interpretation that would be correct and divided accurately before us today, we pray, and ask that you would uh, speak to us greatly through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we begin in this scene and no doubt we know the scene well. No doubt you have read or heard messages on this uh, this message of the gospel and the Lord Jesus on the cross. And we're not going to take time to fill in all the gaps around that right now. But I want to introduce to you three characters. And the first character is Mary. And I've entitled the first point, Mary, a woman of sorrows. That might seem a little bit strange. Most of us are very familiar with the title of Christ, who was the man of sorrows. But in the background behind the greatness of Christ's sacrificial um, giving and who he was and his sorrow is a mother who experienced great sorrow. And I want to show you that for a few moments here. We probably haven't thought about it a whole lot. We haven't probably thought about Mary as a woman and the sadness that she endured and the grief and the burden that she carried. In fact, the Bible says in many, many places that Mary treasured all these things up in her heart. On three occasions, I believe it is, it says that in the scripture, she was a lady who took things in and meditated and thought over them. But we, we, we live in a dangerous society perhaps today because in Protestant circles we often approach the Mary character with great apprehension because of the veneration that has been assigned to her by the Roman Catholic Church. And unfortunately this precludes us sometimes from seeing the true character of this lady. We know that so many are prepared to worship and idolise this woman Mary, so sometimes we take a step back from actually talking about who she is. Same thing happens with the Holy Spirit. We talk about the Pentecostal movement and we don't want to deal too much with the Holy Spirit and his purpose and what he does because so many people have misused that doctrine. And so today I want us to see Mary for who she is for a few moments here. And uh, these are just some uh, general observations. So observation number one from the scriptures, we won't turn to all of them. Mary was a virgin. Now, we sometimes gloss over that fact, but the reality of that fact is not just in a sexual and a physical sense, but she was a pure lady. She was a lady who God had selected to bear his precious son. And I think it's an interesting thing that he did choose someone in accordance with the Old Testament. That was, in fact, a prophecy. We find that in the book of Isaiah. But he chose someone who was pure who was a virgin ready to be prepared to bring into this world the incarnate Son of God. She was a virgin. Luke 1.26 reminds us that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Don't let anybody tell you that uh, the Bible really means that she was just a young maiden, as some translators would have us believe. There is, some, there is a, a theological and foundational truth to the fact that she was a virgin. And we need to understand that. And if she is not that, then the Bible has lied, God has lied, because he said, I will send forth my son, she will be born of a virgin. And so we note that about this young lady, by the way, who probably is a teenager, A virgin. She was a pure lady. Not sinlessly pure. We do not suggest that at all. But she was one who walked in purity before her God. As did Job. As did Noah. As did these other people in the Old Testament. She is in the same situation. One who loved the Lord uh, and hated evil. 
The second observation that I noticed, I did a study on this person of Mary, the character of Mary, is that Mary found favour with the Lord. Luke one twenty eight says, and he came to her, the angel, and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. Mary was what we would call an Old Testament saint. She was one who trusted in God as her salvation. She was by no means perfect. She was by no means sinless. She was one who was favoured not because of what she had done, but because she had exercised faith in her great God. She was a righteous woman who honoured the Lord. Observation number three for us this morning regarding Mary. Mary was a woman of great I want to read you a portion of scripture here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 31 to 38. This is what the Bible says. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, which is a reasonable question, don't you think? How shall this be since I am a virgin? That's a reasonable question. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. What a great verse. And Mary said, behold, to the angel, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know what Mary said? Mary said, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't understand how this all works. But you have come to me and I exercise faith and I believe that you've been sent from God, angel. So let it be. I embrace this. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, but what that really meant. We talk about uh, betrothal in the uh, in the New Testament here. We talk about divorce and what Joseph intended to do. What Joseph intended to do to Mary was a just thing. To put her away privately was a gracious thing because here is a woman who is found with child and he's not the father. Can you imagine the whispers? Can you imagine the women in the society and the women in the community? Because Joseph isn't saying, yes, that's my son. He's not. And all the women in all the region know that the Messiah is coming. And that's why Elizabeth later on says, you are blessed of all women because God has chosen for you to bear the son of God. But can you imagine the sorrow attached to the fact that there is gossip, no doubt, happening in the communities as this lady who claims to be a virgin says, the spirit of God came upon me. Wow. Mary was a great woman of faith. We notice also that Mary magnified the Lord. We're familiar with the Magnificat. We've heard that. That's a song. We've heard it in the scriptures many times. This is what Mary says as she speaks with her cousin Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 to 55. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. By the way, let me pause for a moment. The Bible says that Mary said, God, my Savior. That is a very important point to note. Why on earth does Mary need a Savior if she is immaculate, if she is perfect, if she is to be feared and worshipped? She says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary needed saving And she recognised that. For he has looked on my humble estate, Mary says. 
For behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary magnified the Lord. You say, are we getting somewhere here? Is there a reason why we're spending so much time on this? I want you to note, fifthly, this observation. Mary observed some incredible events. What I want to do for a moment is I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this mother. So perhaps, and I don't know enough about childbirth, clearly. I don't know anything about childbirth, really. But what I read and what I see in the scriptures makes me think, wow, what a strange situation this must have been. Here is Mary. She goes to Bethlehem with her husband uh, and she is now ready to give birth to this child. And we know the story. We often hear about it in our our Christmas messages and so forth. Uh, But here we are in a manger in Bethlehem and she gives birth to this child. Not far down the road and perhaps moments Hours, a day later, a whole bunch of shepherds come in and begin to worship the child that you just had. Now, that that, that probably doesn't happen. I don't know about you mothers out there, but that probably didn't happen when you had your children. This is a strange phenomenon for Mary, is it not? This is a strange thing. Now, she knows that the angel has said, this is going to be uh, the Holy One. This is the Messiah come in the flesh. This is the one we've all been waiting for. But still, as a mother, what a strange situation in Luke chapter 2 that the presence of the shepherds would be there. And then just a little while later in Matthew chapter 2, we read that these magi have been travelling all over the place to come and worship your brand new baby. And not only do they do that, they bring offerings and treasures and they lay them before the feet of this toddler. That's a strange thing, wouldn't you think, for a mother. But I think perhaps the most, and I don't know this, this is not given in the scriptures, but I would think that the most powerful situation that occurred for her as a young mother was the fact that in a dream they are told to escape to Egypt because shortly every male child is going to be killed in Bethlehem under the age of two and Mary knows full well why. I have no doubt that tears would have come through her eyes when she became aware of the fact that every male child in Bethlehem was murdered because a wicked king was after her son. I believe she would have been a little bit sorrowful. That may have been the beginning of sorrows. Not too long after that, in Luke chapter 2, they go to Jerusalem and there they meet this old man, Simeon. And Simeon says some incredible things. Finally, I get to see, finally I get to see this man, this, this child who is going to bring about the change in our nation, the one we've been waiting for. But he says something very striking in the midst of that conversation in brackets. He says, your heart will be pierced through, Mary, with great sorrow. In brackets, in our Bible version, it's in brackets. But Mary, he was talking to Mary and he says, you are going to be pierced through with like a sword of sorrows. And then just a few moments later, Anna the prophetess makes a proclamation about this little child's redemption that's going to take place. 
There's so many things happening in this little family just at the beginning here. And then we have nothing at all in all of the history in, of the scripture until we get to a 12 year old boy who happens to go up to Jerusalem with his family for Passover like they have done every year, fulfilling and obeying. And, and can you imagine what the household would have been like? I mean, we're dealing with a perfect son. So every time there's a problem in the household, it's not him. Now, uh, my mum's here, so I have to be very careful about what I say. But I'm pretty sure in our household that it was mostly mum's fault. No, that's not true. But there's no doubt that in any normal household, there's always fault, isn't there? There's always problems, children's fighting and, and parents have it wrong and attitudes are wrong. But every time this young man was perfect, that would drive you crazy. Honestly, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that, you know, and can you imagine the siblings, the younger siblings? And no doubt, as siblings would do, they would cast accusations in the teeth of Jesus Christ. He did that to me. And Mary in her heart would know, well, hang on. He couldn't have done that. What am I going to do with these other kids here? You know, can you imagine just all of that going on in this household? What a strange situation that was. And so they go to Jerusalem and they're there and you know, and we're talking about a big company of people and sometimes people look at the scripture and they say, how did Mary and Joseph leave Jesus behind? Very simple. It's not that they didn't care. It's that when you travel to Jerusalem, you travel in a great big lot and no doubt you would have said, yeah, you can go stand with uncle, what's his name or auntie, whoever over there. That's fine. And they get back to, well, part the way down the journey and they say, where's Jesus? He's gone. Strange situation. They go back and they find him and understandably worried, and there he is sitting and talking and asking questions of the leaders of the day on theological matters. That's an unusual 12-year-old. Mary, the Bible says, treasures this up in her heart. And then, interestingly enough, did you know that Mary is next found at Cana in the first miracle of her son before he was brought out really In his public ministry, there he turned the water into wine. You remember that? And it was his mother who said, you listen to him. Listen to him. We're out of, we're out of the good wine. What are we going to do? Listen to my son, she says. And she witnessed his power. And then a long time later, in Luke chapter 8 verse 19, the only other time we find Mary is when Mary and the other siblings come to find the Lord Jesus and you remember that uh, someone comes to him because the crowds are so thronging around him, they can't get to him and they say, Jesus, your mother and your family are here and what does the Lord Jesus say? These are my brothers and my sisters in the Lord. These are them. But no doubt Mary took note of the thousands of people that were thronging around her son. Mary observed some incredible events. But then observation number six. And again, you must put yourself in the shoes of this lady. Mary witnessed the great agony of the cross. Was Mary a woman of sorrows? Let's try to see the circumstances that surrounded this redemptive picture that's taking place. A.W. Pink writes, Never such bliss at a human birth. Never such sorrow at an inhuman death. Take note of this. The gruesome scene before Mary. 
She can hear the angry jeers and mockery of the crowd around her. And surely everything within her would want to say, you don't know him. You don't know this man. You don't know he's perfect. He's sinless. He's doing this for you. She knew it. She could hear the angry jeers of the people all around. She knew that the night before, all of his disciples had forsaken him. And only John stood next to her. Where are the men? Where are the eleven who were with you? What's happened? She knew the absence. But think about this from a mother's perspective. She had watched him in the carpenter's shop pick up planks of wood and bend his back in the service of their family. And now she looks at him and sees him with a lacerated back on the cross. This is my son. The brow that she had kissed was now crowned with thorns. The hands that she had held, now punctured by nails. The arms that she had embraced, now stretched out on the cross. The one she'd cradled in her arms, now writhing alone in pain and agony. The sword that Simeon had foretold was now piercing her very heart. But you know what? She didn't run. She didn't hide. She watched in silent pain as her precious son made atonement for her sin. Wow. What a strange mystery, is it not? The mother who bore the Christ now stands at the foot of his cross, not to aid in redemption, but to be redeemed by her son. What a strange mystery. And so therefore... Brethren, I suggest Mary, a woman of sorrows. I want you to see the second character. In our text before us, John, a loving disciple. John, a loving disciple. The Bible says there in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. Now, you need to understand, John is a humble, humble man. And the reason we know that this is John is back in John chapter 13. He says the one who he loved uh, leaned upon his breast. And we read in the other uh, other texts, the other gospels, that that was John. And John, not wanting to exalt himself, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Such a humble man. But this is none other than the apostle. John. But what had happened the night before, friends? The night before, every one of Christ's disciples, including John, had forsaken him when he was taken into custody. In fact, Matthew 25:56 says, "Then all the disciples left him and fled." Even Peter. Peter who had expressed his willingness to die for the Lord Jesus was found to deny him on three occasions in that same night. This is John, a loving disciple who the night before had fled. So here's some observations about this man, John, and we won't take long so much on him. John had returned to the Saviour's side. John had returned to the Saviour's side. The Bible says there, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. I don't know about you, I don't know if you've ever put yourself in the the shoes of the disciples, but I have often wondered what kind of a night the apostles had 
whilst Jesus was taken into custody? Did they sleep? Were they afraid? Where did they run to? Uh, what sort of an attitude did they think far out? I spent three and a half years with this man and, and, and I don't know if it's the real thing now. I didn't think this was going to be how it, how it happened. I thought that he was going to come in great victory and take over Rome like we all thought he was going to. He's going to be the king and reign and, and, and now he's, he's, he's being beaten and taken into custody and tomorrow he's probably going to die. I wonder what was going through the minds of these disciples who fled and forsook him just less than 24 hours before. But we note something. John was no longer prepared to live in the realm of fear and shame. He took his stand beside his saviour who was on the cross now. And the Greek suggests to us that Jesus and Mary and the other two that were there were very near the very foot of Christ. The uh, the location uh, specified here denotes the fact that they were close. They weren't afraid any longer, especially John was not afraid to be named with this criminal anymore. Yesterday he was. But today he says, I will take my stand at the foot of Jesus Christ. I will not let fear govern my life. I will live in this way. And not only will I be here, but I'll be here with these ladies. Very important truth and principle to note here. See, it is possible to mess it up. It's possible for us to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus at a time. It's possible when the Lord Jesus calls on us to speak his name and we we mess it up and we flee and we forsake for a time. But we will always return if we are his and we will come back by means of the cross and redemption. And that is the wonderful principle and message we see in this passage. You know what I think is really interesting too is that if all the other disciples are still out there and had fled and John is the only one there, he is the only eyewitness who wrote a gospel. Only eyewitness on that occasion who wrote a gospel. And we're looking at it here, John. There's a great challenge here. Will you and I, like John, though fickle and full of fear at times, take our stand with Jesus Christ at his cross? Will we do that? I wonder if we will. So John returned to the Saviour's side. The second observation about this man, John, I want you to see that John received new responsibility at the cross. John received new responsibility at the cross. The Lord Jesus here, in verse 26, the Bible says, saw his mother and John standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Do you know what's happening? Not sure if you're aware of what's happening in this text, but what's happening here is that the Lord Jesus is assigning responsibility to this man, John, to take care of his mother. This was a commitment for life. Got to understand what's being said here. The Lord Jesus, in whatever way it was expressed, we have here uh, the inspired truth in front of us that is preserved in the word of God here. But what else was said? We don't know if there were other things said. We're not sure. But this is what was intended. John, she is now yours. I am departing. She is now in your care. I just want to give you a picture of what this looks like. In the Jewish culture... This meant that John was now responsible for Mary in every other way. We need to pause for a moment here and forget all of our Western culture. 
We need to forget about uh, how our government works. We need to forget about social security. We need to forget about the pension. We need to forget about all of those things because this is what this meant. It meant that you are going to provide her a place in your own home and lodging. And if need be, you'll build an extension. Okay? That's the first thing. It means that you will provide for her every meal. You don't race down to Hungry Jack's or McDonald's to get that. You, you're making it at home. Your wife and your family are responsible to feed this lady who is now welcomed into your home. You are to provide her every need for clothing. When the clothes begin to wear out, you need to supply materials and so forth so that that can be made. You need to provide a place of warmth and comfort. You need to provide any medicinal aspects that are required from the local physician. You need to provide spiritual headship. Now that she comes under you, she comes under the umbrella of your spiritual headship as the man of that home. And you need to provide security and protection for her from those who would seek to do the wrong thing by her in any way. This was a great responsibility. This was massive And it was a sign to this disciple of love. And this is what I want you to note as we talk about this aspect of coming by way of the cross. When you come to the cross, you are distributed new responsibility. When you come by means of the Son of God, when you come by means of His redemptive plan, when you stand before the Lord Jesus in sincerity and trueness of heart, when you've laid aside all fear and all concern and you trust in that man on that cross who is dying for your sin like John did, you come away with new responsibility. See, here's what I see today. We have this new gospel mentality where if you'll come to Christ, you don't have to do anything at all. That is utter rubbish. That is not true. When we come to lordship, when we come to understand who this king is, we walk away with the privilege of service for him. We walk away with new responsibility. We're a new creature and we are given responsibility and task to serve him. We're not to go and bury the talent in the ground. We're to invest that which he has given to us. And for us here as a church, if you have come by means of the cross, which is the only way to come to God the Father, then you have been given new responsibility. Are you doing it? Are you serving as you ought to? Here's what we find, observation number three about John. This is the last one about him. That he was an obedient disciple. Lord Jesus says, behold your mother. He knew instantaneously what that means. I know what that means. You're telling me that she's mine to take care of. I'm going to be like her kinsman redeemer of the Old Testament. She's mine to take care of. John knew that. And John did not say, hey, Lord, I served you three and a half years now. You know, I think maybe a little bit of a sabbatical would be really nice. I'll take a bit of a break. You know, thank you very much, but no thank you. I've got my own family to look after. No, no, no. You know what John did? The Bible says there, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his own heart. Rand Hummel is a preacher in America, and he suggests that true obedience is made up of three things. He says, we obey quickly, we obey sweetly, And we obey completely. Those three things. Parents, that's a great thing to be able to say to children. You will obey quickly. You will obey sweetly. And you will obey completely. Because you know what would happen for me growing up is that uh, quickly 
Didn't always happen, did it, Mum? I didn't always obey quickly. I certainly didn't obey very sweetly. And uh, it was usually partial as opposed to completely. But here we see the Apostle John says, I'll do it now. I'll do it with the right attitude and I'll do it completely. Obedience. Let me ask you, are you an obedient disciple? Are you a disciple who, like the Apostle John, whatever the Lord lays upon you, whatever he puts before you and says, do this in my name, obey this, I command you to do this, go and do it. Do you respond and say, yea, Lord, yea, Lord. I want to do this. I'm so excited. Let's go do this. I wonder, is that a reality? We come to our third character. I feel like you should all get up and have a stretch, but this is the final character. This is the last character and the greatest character, and it's the character who's on the cross, and his name is Christ. And we see Christ, a compassionate saviour. Mary is a woman of sorrows. John is a loving disciple, but oh, Christ... Christ is a compassionate saviour. And I want you to see in the final moments left here how that is a reality. I say final moments, I'm looking at the pages that he, but anyway. 600 years. 600 years before he was ever born incarnate, before he was ever came into this world as a human being. Don't for a moment think that he was not already in existence. The Son of God is from eternity past. But 600 years before his incarnation, this is what the prophet Isaiah said of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 40.11 He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and lead those that are with young. In Isaiah 42 and verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And I'm aware for those who may be familiar with the context, not all of that relates to his first coming, but we see his character and the promise of his compassion in his character. And so let's have a look at some observations here about Jesus Christ as a compassionate saviour. Observation number one, Christ showed compassion right throughout his life. This was not a last minute thing. He didn't suddenly think, oh dear, I need to be compassionate about my mother and suddenly deal with that. He was a compassionate saviour all the way along. Here's some examples for you. In Mark 1, 40 to 41, he was moved with pity on a leper. In Luke 7, 11 to 17, he raises a widow's son because the Bible said he saw the widow and had compassion on her. What a compassionate saviour. In Matthew 9, 35 to 38, he looks out and there is a multitude of people. And this is what the Bible says when he saw the crowds. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. He was concerned for their spiritual welfare, the multitudes of people. His heart beat with compassion, our Saviour. Matthew 14, 13 to 14 says that he fed the 5,000. Why did he do that? When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. In Matthew five thirty-two, uh, Matthew fifteen thirty-two, Jesus feeds four thousand, and this is how this came about. I have compassion on the crowd, he says to his disciples, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He's concerned about their physical welfare. They haven't eaten for three days. He says, I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. I'm going to have compassion on their physical needs, not just their spiritual need. Matthew 20, 29 to 34, Jesus heals two blind men and says, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. 
And when you do a study on this word compassion in the scripture, nearly every single instance of that Greek word, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ and his passionate desire for people. Their hurt in his heart. They were very much on his mind and in his heart. He had an inward affection and a concern and a mercy towards them. Let me just make this statement. The entire gospel message is predicated on the fact that God was moved with compassion over your state of sin and mine. Were it not for compassion, there would be no salvation. Were it not that God is interested in people, not because uh, we are some sort of grand uh, thing to have, it's not because there's some great thing in us that he says, well, I'll have them, they're just fantastic, but for his own glory, but he is compassionate towards his people. What a moving thought that the God of all eternity would care about you and I. Observation number two which is really the message, to be honest. Observation number two, this is it. Christ showed compassion and honour towards his mother. Here, in these final hours of life, Jesus sees his mother and makes preparation for her ongoing welfare. All of that really was preparatory to this because this is the text. He says, when he saw his mother, and he says to John, behold your mother. I saw something in the text this time as I studied this that I have never seen before and I just want to briefly share it with you. Here's the question. Why did Jesus at this time take note of his mother? I have a suggestion. I don't know that it's for sure. I'll ask when I get to heaven, but this is what I'm suggesting. If you're still in your scriptures there, John chapter 19, have a look please in verse 23. Just Immediately preceding this situation, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. Did you know Jewish men in this day would wear five pieces of garments? Five pieces of clothing. And when we read that the disciples, excuse me, that the soldiers divided them into four parts, we're talking about four pieces of garment, not torn, but four separate individual pieces of garments on the Lord Jesus, they removed from him and gave to the soldiers. Everybody still with me? You understand? So there's one left, which is the tunic. Okay? They had to decide normally who would get the fifth one. Because These soldiers, they've all got their piece. Now, who's going to get the tunic? And that was like the award. That was the trophy piece uh, in the cruel Roman system. But here's what I never knew. In the Jewish culture, the tunic was handmade by one's mother. And perhaps as they cast lots for this undergarment and the Lord Jesus noticed The soldiers pick up this seamless tunic that his precious mother had made for him. He suddenly realised and remembered, not that he ever forgot, but you know what I mean, his attention was directed towards his mother. Imagine how Mary felt if she had in fact woven that and here they are casting lots over that which she had made for her Precious son. Fairly powerful, fairly powerful image. 
And I think that the Lord Jesus knew, I know he knew, that Simeon some 33 years earlier had said this, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, and it's happening now. The prophecy was being fulfilled because Mary watches as her firstborn son writhes in pain. And we find in this third word of our Saviour on the cross, the perfect model of honouring one's parents. As the perfect man, Christ fully discharged his domestic duties, even in the midst of agony. We're almost done, but I want to take the time to read these two quotes to you. One commentator writes this, Probably these lines may be read by numbers of grown-up people who still have living fathers and mothers. He writes, how are you treating them? Are you truly honouring them? Does this example of Christ on the cross put you to shame? It may be you are young and vigorous and your parents grey-headed and infirm, but, saith the Holy Spirit, despise not thy mother when she is old, Proverbs 23:22. It may be you are rich and they are poor, then fail not to make provision for them. It may be they live in a distant state or land, then neglect not to write them words of appreciation and cheer which shall brighten their closing days. These are sacred duties. Honour thy father and thy mother. The necessity to submit and obey his mother had long passed. The Lord Jesus was no longer responsible by law to obey his mother, but he was to honour her. Jesus demonstrated a high view of God's command and fulfilled this great responsibility. Again, this commentator writes the following. There is a lesson here which many need to take heart. Excuse me, yeah, take heart in these days. Take to heart in these days. No duty, no work, however important it may be, can excuse us from discharging the obligations of nature, from caring for those who have fleshly claims upon us. They who go forth as missionaries to labour in heathen lands and who leave their children behind or who send them back to the homeland to be cared for by strangers are not following in the steps of the Saviour. We know people like that. Those women who spend most of their time at public meetings, even though they may be religious meetings, or who go down into the slums to minister to the poor and needy, to the neglect of their own family at home, do but bring reproach upon the name and cause of Christ. Those men, even though they stand at the forefront of Christian work, who are so busy preaching and teaching that they have no time to discharge the obligations they owe to their own wives and children, need to study and practice the principle exemplified here by Christ on the cross. We have a great problem and a great tragedy that has occurred today, and that is that we have left off our spiritual duty to the secular world. When we read in the Bible, we read that it is our responsibility as church and as Christians to take care not only of our direct family, but of one another. And so we find that it is our responsibility to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction. We're to minister to them. We're not to uh, to line our own pockets. We are to serve and to help practically, spiritually, in any way possible. But because we have so much here in our Western culture, we fail in this great call. In the Jewish culture, it is just assumed that the, the elderly parent or, that, uh, or, or the wife whose husband has died, that's a brother or a sister, would come and live with that family. That's just assumed in the Jewish culture, but not here. Not here. We, we care about ourselves. 
too much. And we see in Christ Jesus an incredible compassion, not just for Mary, but for everyone. And we need to walk in that same way. And so in closing, there's one last observation I want to make before we finish. And that is this. Christ shows compassion to you. He shows compassion to the blind and to the lame and to the beggars and to the dead and to the widows and so on. He shows compassion to his mother. But right through all of his ministry, Christ, even this very moment, shows compassion to us. And as we gather around the table in just a few moments and we partake, we must be mindful of the fact, oh, how compassionate our Christ is. You say, how compassionate. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not, my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Yet mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. You say how, how compassionate we are if we are unsaved today, if we are outside of God's kingdom, we are blind We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are hopeless and helpless. We're lost. The Bible calls us rebels and renegades. We're wicked. We're evil. We're children of wrath. We're enemies. We're sick. We're unclean. We are far off. We are alienated. We are darkened. All of those things are reality if we're outside of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you are saved this morning, that was you. In fact, I think it's Corinthians where it says, but some Such of these were you, but you are washed, but you are cleaned, you are justified, you are sanctified. Your identity is now in Christ. All the favor of God is placed upon you because of Jesus Christ, who was your substitute, who died and then rose again so that you may die to sin and live for him. What an incredibly compassionate God. You know, you read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 and it is a dark, dark story. And you were dead in sins. You were dead in sins. In all the the wickedness and the unrighteousness. You were children of wrath in that passage. And we lived among the the course of this world and and by nature we were those who were under the very wrath of God. And then we come to verse number 4 and it begins with an incredible contrast. Men in our biblical interpretations course. But... That word but is changes everything. But God who is rich in mercy. In other words, God who is compassionate. God who cares. It was He who when we were still sinners died for us. Romans 5.8 And so my call for us, my invitation for us this morning is if you are outside of God's kingdom, if you know not what it is to have sins forgiven, answer the call of Christ, come unto me, all who, are la- who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Here's a summary of the Lord Jesus in all that he's done. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, rich beyond measure. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Unsaved person, you don't know what I mean by this concept of being saved from sin. Let me encourage you, the compassionate Christ tenderly calls to you today to trust him. And then those of us who are saved, let's remember. Let's remember his compassion in particular as it relates to 
his own life. Look at what he did on the cross for his mother. What an incredible illustration of Christ's compassion. 